Yes, yes, my healthcare crew. So this, uh, I've just come off the back of a uh, delightful conversation with Dr. Ali Ajaz, who is a forensic psychiatrist. Um, he was in the NHS, but but uh, no longer is anymore. Uh, and he was, uh, he's done a brilliant video um, that's currently on Rumble with um, Kate Blewett, um, which is a really good type of film documentary um, where they, they have a nice chat and it's really good. I suggest you go and watch it. I'll put the link in the uh, in the description. But I had a great chat with him, lovely guy. Got to get him on again because there were so many questions I didn't get a chance to, to ask him. Um, but yeah, brave diamond geezer. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. All right, all the best and I'll see you guys on the flip side. Hello everybody and thank you for joining me today uh, on the NHS 100k podcast with me Matt Taylor. So today I've got a really good guest with me that I've been itching to speak to after seeing one of his films that he was in. Um, I, I won't uh, dilly dally anymore so I'd just like to introduce Dr Ali Ajaz. How are you? Well hi Matt, uh, I'm great thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Good, I hope you feel this enthusiastic at the end of it all. <laughs> so. But I wanted to, um, so you're a forensic psychiatrist, right? Correct, yeah. So I'm going to bat it over to you to basically explain to us people that aren't aware of what it is that you do. So if you could just take us through what your role does um, and, and how it um, impacts in sort of treatment and everything else. Yeah, sure thing. So, so I was trained as a forensic psychiatrist. I did my uh, undergraduate medical degree at King's College London, uh, graduated in 2005. Um, and I've done most of my training in the southeast of England and London uh, in psychiatry. And I specialised in forensic mental health, which really looks at the mental health of people involved in the criminal justice system. Um, uh, so criminals or, or people who just kind of got caught up in the, in the, in the wrong, wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and most of my work up to a month ago, uh, in fact, nearly all of it was uh, as a consultant in the NHS, as a doctor in the NHS. Uh, and my main role was really helping um, young men with chronic mental health problems, uh, often psychosis, uh, often drug abuse, uh, lots of violence, lots of abusive backgrounds, and rehabilitate them and get them integrated back into society and into community. Uh, and that was the main thrust of, of, of my job uh, and my consultant role up to, up to a month ago. Um, and alongside that, uh, for almost 10 years, I've been a senior clinical lecturer uh, at uh, Bart's Medical School, um, where essentially I'm kind of involved in setting up and teaching uh, medical students about psychiatry uh, and involved in a whole range of things there. Um, alongside that, I do a lot of medical legal work where uh, I do reports for the courts and that ties in with the forensic work and sometimes calls it, called as an expert witness to uh, have um, kind of a uh, back and forth in, in the courts with uh, um, uh, with barristers and solicitors around my opinion on, on certain cases and some very high profile, very interesting things. Um, and um, I also do have my own practice, which I've moved into full time now once I've left the NHS. Um, and really, it's uh, really trying to help people to understand health in a way that uh, is a departure from the mainstream, because one of the things I've realised um, now, I'm in kind of middle age after 15, 17 years of, of working as a doctor is that the paradigm and the model we have around health and illness um, is essentially flawed. Um, so we need to really kind of rethink uh, what health is. Uh, and the kind of cornerstone of that is um, really empowering people to look after themselves rather than to rely on doctors or drugs uh, or anything else. Um, so that's really kind of is my passion and that's what I'm developing and really kind of focusing on. And I'm 
kind of enjoying it immensely. Um, that's the the short version of who I am and, and what I do, but I'm sure you'll pick up on any aspects of that if you kind of like. I've got reams of questions I want to ask you. I just want to bring people in gently. So um, obviously it's not the most common field of medicine to get into. Um, what what made you decide on, on forensic medicine or forensic psychiatry? Yeah. Well, if I'm brutally honest, uh, which I will be uh, uh, through this podcast, is I guess the, the excitement uh, around the danger element. So uh, certain aspects of the job, you're dealing with dangerous people, uh, or at the very least, at certain times in their life, have become very dangerous. Um, and you know, having a, a responsibility to try and manage those people and that risk and that danger, as well as helping with their mental illness, uh, and also having a kind of responsibility to reintegrate that person back into society is, you know, I, I just find it fascinating. Um, so why people do what they do, um, how does illness affect people's risk and danger? Um, and, you know, I find it a lot of fun going to court uh, and having a battle back and forth with um, with solicitors who, who think they know, uh, well, barristers when, you, when, you're, when you're giving evidence, who think they know more than you and you're going to have to, you know, present you, you know, what you know, you know, in a very kind of high pressure, intense environment. Um, so I really kind of thrive under pressure and that kind of danger side of things. Uh, it's it's not really what you think when you go into medical school and you know aim to be a doctor, um, but you know it does carry through all the principles you learn um, as a medic, uh, but ha has it in this really kind of niche area, which I, I just find really appealing um, uh, and exciting, and and even to this day, you know, it's it's you know I find fascinating. So um, yeah, that that was really the, the main thing, the, the danger, really, the danger element. Oh, danger junkie. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? probably why you spoke out then so soon so i wanted to so for people that don't know um dr ajaz did a um a film back in january 22 with um with kate blewett which is on rumble i'll put the link in the description after this i suggest you all watch it it's um it's three hours long but it doesn't seem like it but we were just briefly talking about this um before before we hit hit record but it's it's great watching kate slowly kind of ask the right questions after your discussion uh, uh, and replies to the questions she's asked. So I recommend anybody goes to check it out because it's it's a really good way of seeing how your thought process should go from where it started to to where we're going now with the, with the right sort of questions. But the the main thing I wanted to ask you, obviously, when was it that you started to see things? Because obviously January twenty two was when the film came out, so we had pretty much two years then. Um, in this situation so when did you first start noticing and, and things going wrong and what was it well i think from the very very beginning if i'm honest because the nature of what i do is to be skeptical and to ask questions and not to trust anything on face value uh, and you kind of put this in the context of you know having some sense of the society and reality that we live in in that uh, decisions when it comes to public uh health um infrastructure government they're not always done for the interests of the people. So if you know, I've you know, I've developed my understanding of the world over the years through the people that I've uh, come across. You know, great teachers that I've had, um, and so that was really my baseline. That you know, don't trust anyone. Uh, not in a paranoid way. I deal with lots of paranoid people. I don't consider myself to be paranoid, but you know, it's just the nature of reality that people have to earn their trust and don't necessarily take things on face value. Um, so when um, the reports are coming about this virus um, in Wuhan and people kind of dropping dead. It just it just seemed kind of weird. 
and odd because it's not something that you know kind of you know was quite alien that you know what is actually going on here it kind of slowly was creeping in and we we're being told oh, it's nothing to worry about it's a mild illness uh but you could feel this kind of sense of uh, of something ominous you know this kind of uh mysterious evil mist kind of come coming across uh, and then you know for one moment our politician saying one thing uh you know we don't have to do anything we don't have to do anything in the schools you know you're going to be absolutely fine uh to overnight just changing their mind um and you know it's not a you know it doesn't surprise me that politicians say one thing one day um or minute and then the next minute they say something else um so it wasn't it wasn't quite a shock but you know it just kind of reinforced that something else was was going on it, it didn't make sense um but what was clear is there was a big kind of fear around something that was unknown and that was very tangible um and um you know it it did take me a few weeks to really try to you know, question myself to think you know is this something that we really need to worry about or not uh so um I, i guess from the beginning i had reservations um just because of my world view but also in the way things things happened so do you think because obviously in in your in your role you will see the same patient potentially multiple times yeah um over a period of time to to gain knowledge and and to let, you know gauge what sort of mental state they're in so as a doctor um normal doctors only see their patients for 15 minutes at a push you know once every so many months um so do you think the fact that you've been consistently exposed to the same people over a period of time you can spot obviously when the narratives change or their stories change you then get a little bit more suspicious as to you know well that's not what you said there could be something so basically what i'm saying do you think the fact that, that your line of work made you a little bit more acute um to 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 spot in what was what was kind of coming over the horizon i mean absolutely i mean i'm i'm so used to people lying to me um whether it's intentionally because they're hiding things or subconsciously you know they don't want to admit to anything and when things are high stake so if you or your freedom for example um sometimes you know people say things or exaggerate things and um you know the more you get to see someone uh the more you understand them it's very difficult for someone to keep up a pretense uh, over you know many meetings so um you know yeah, absolutely you know part of my part of my job is to kind of test what's coming what's in front of me you know how how, how no matter how real it seems um uh, so i think it it certainly prepared me to um you know to be skeptical and to ask questions and and to kind of speak out and um um you know i, I think it's kind of equipped me because it's it's also a skill it's it's something that you just don't just do at a flick of a switch you know it's something that you have to be comfortable in that kind of unknown in that uncertainty and i think psychiatry in general it was appealing to me also because you know we weren't dealing with uh, which means oh your blood pressure side we need to give you this tablet or, you know i'm being a great doctor here you know it, you know it's dealing with a lot of uncertainty like what on earth is going on the brain is so surreally complex you know we don't really understand it uh but we have to do something about these people whose brains are clearly sick and poorly um so really being in uh the zone of discomfort it was appealing to me from the beginning and i think my line of work has really kind of uh trained me to be comfortable with that and and you know not to kind of run away and to kind of react in a hysterical way uh, uh which you know which can happen if you're not used to things so it's only i think toughened me up you know in order to to still stay calm and to think when other people seemingly are losing their heads around you your bs detector is probably a little bit more honed than most so i reckon so i mean do you ever get people trying to plead insanity in things that kind of stuff or is i'm i just watching too many movies 
Yeah, I mean, um, I think too many movies, really. Uh, but it's, uh, it's something I get asked all the time. And I think it's really uh, because there's so many people involved in that process. Uh, you need a legal team that is concerned enough about their client to think that they need a mental health uh, assessment, a forensic psychiatrist to come in and give an opinion. And then on, the, on top of that, there need to be certain circumstances in the case and the events where insanity is applicable, in addition to someone's mental state. And, um, you know, as I say, you know, once you've done this long enough, you know, uh, uh, it's quite clear to see who, who is sick and who is ill and who is not. Uh, and actually, I have to say, most cases, it's, you know, there's a genuine, you know, most people don't try it on because it's difficult to keep keep a pretense up for being crazy. Longer than a day. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I think it's natural. I think it's something that I kind of get asked all the time, you know, is it? And I think it kind of feeds into the stigma around mental illness that actually, you know, anyone can fake it. You know, because yeah. you know, it's not real, right? You know, anyone can, you know, anyone can uh, put it on a drop of a hat. But the reality is very, very different to that. I think with every, with every, with every sort of trade in within the NHS, there's always a certain question that everyone asks. Uh, you know, so if you're a lawyer, it's like have you ever shouted objection in the court? Um, being a paramedic, they always say, you know, what's the worst job you've been to? You know, and it's, it's, it's I'm sort of with you. It's like do you deal with many mental people, but yeah. um, and I don't mean it mentally like that, but. This segues into a question I wanted to ask later on down the line, but it, it fits in nice. So I don't know if you if you were you probably will be aware better than I will, which is why I want to ask it. There was a slight reform of the Mental Health Act um, a little while ago, and there was quite a concern about it because it was happening when there was a lot of protests going on, and um, there was rumours that they were, they were messing with the Mental Health Act, which would result in them needing less uh, clinical intervention to, to to determine to detain someone under the um, mental capacity act not you know um i think there needs to be a doctor a psychiatrist. there's a few people as you said that need to be in that sort of line but there was rumors that they would they changed it to make it slightly easier um is that do you know anything about that or is that just a rumor or have you heard anything or am i just talking rubbish yeah i mean i mean to be honest i haven't got my finger on the pulse of mental health act reform um but you you are correct in that um in order to detain someone you need two doctors who approve under uh, section 12 which is a, a type of training that you that you need to have had and then you have a, a, a senior social worker called an amp an approved mental health practitioner uh, and really it's interesting that at the moment you've got uh two doctors uh, who can actually be vetoed by the uh by the social worker who says no, actually you know they, they get the final say uh so it's actually it, it's actually quite quite a good kind of system in that sense um at, at the moment in terms of the reforms i'm not too sure whether there was some talk around having maybe one doctor instead of two. Yeah, um, that's, what, that's what I heard, yeah. Yeah, um, but I think still it's it's quite a high threshold in order to detain someone, you know, in kind of working um, working on the coalface, so to speak. It is, um, you know, it's a hard thing to do, and it's not a thing that gets done lightly, um, uh, and someone has to be really sick. And once you've, once you've kind of done the job, you know, for a, like yourself, for a, for a critical period, you know, you're quite comfortable in seeing who needs to be detained and, and who doesn't. It's very few cases that it's kind of in the grey area. Um, and, and, and the way that the NHS services are set up, um, really, it's the kind of crisis, um, dealing with crisis and people who are really kind of severely unwell. Majority of mental illness, you know, either gets missed overall or is kind of pushed out into the community. Uh, and, you know, people are just suffering. You know, people are just suffering, and the NHS just the way the, the service is set up, it just isn't set up to, um, you know, to cater for the need that we have, and the need has just grown exponentially over the last two years, uh, and it's been self-inflicted. 
yeah well, by the people but you know it's been imposed rather yeah no 100 percent. i mean when we used to go out to some some um mental health cases on the road uh they were always so difficult to deal because if they're feeling suicidal at the time if they're under the influence of alcohol or drugs then the crisis team wouldn't see them if they were you know a sound state of mind which was rare because obviously they're going through their crisis at the time yeah. so they're normally under the influence or uh of one uh, drug or another um, that there wasn't the capacity for the crisis team to actually physically see them. Um, so the only place we could take them as a place of safety was always A&E, which isn't the most appropriate place. Um, uh, and it was, it's only when you, you're, you're in that sort of line that you realise how under sort of staffed, how under resourced the mental health thing is. And it's rightfully so it's getting the, uh, the attention that it, that it deserves. But I think for a long period of time, it was a stigma that was attached to people. Uh, and it wasn't really sort of, put in the bracket of, of, of an illness, if you will. Um, so I'm glad it's getting the, the attention that it needs because like you say, there's a lot more people that have mental health problems um, that aren't getting the attention that they need, um, which can then exacerbate things and make them obviously deteriorate into, you know, a more severe state of mental illness. What was the pinnacle thing that you saw? So you had your suspicions at the start, which we, which some of us did, what was the one thing at the beginning that that you saw that you were like, yeah, this is uh, this is BS completely? Well, okay, so uh, this this idea of um, kind of consensus that uh, you know it's kind of unprecedented that um, you know everyone, seemingly every country, every nation in the world, or we can just look at Europe, um, were reacting in the same way at the same time, at the same pace. Uh, you could argue that UK was maybe a few weeks behind mainland Europe, but essentially, you know, we were going along the same path, treading the same path in the same way. Um, and, you know, that, that's as fishy as hell, really, because it's never happened before. You know, these are we're supposed to have sovereign nations making their own decision um, for the best interests of their people. Who elect them to make those decisions for them uh, and with this big thing that is an unknown you know there's a big fear around it a big cloud this mysterious mist we don't know even to this day you know there's no consensus around where this thing came from this thing that we call COVID-19 or actually you know that's a clinical uh, kind of syndrome that's been kind of created we can say this SARS-CoV-2 um, where, where you know what it is exactly where it came from where did it come from did it come from some bats or some kind of snake venom, or was it a, a leaked from a lab, or was it manufactured in a lab? Is it a bioweapon? I mean, all these initially you couldn't even ask that question. Okay, so that's the second bit I'll come on to. But um, you know, we don't know where it came from, but yet we have a whole kind of consensus around uh, how we're going to react to it in a way that systematically, systematically um, uh, broke up. The principles of medicine and health um, uh, and autonomy and and that was just really kind of mind-blowing that you know th there's this just doesn't happen naturally this just doesn't happen it doesn't feel right it doesn't fit it doesn't make sense you know it, you know there's kind of big red flags you know j just by that alone so if you take away the specifics if not you don't even look into the specifics but it kind of generally what was happening uh, this was unprecedented um the response and it was coordinated that's the only conclusion you can come to it's not coincidence i don't believe in coincidence yeah it just doesn't happen 
It's just whether people are open, their minds are open to what's to seeing patterns kind of of um, kind of um, behavior or circumstance uh, you know, around them to try and interpret them. And, you know, this was just the biggest kind of, gosh, you know, what on earth is going on here? You know, this is, this cannot be right. You know, it doesn't feel right, it cannot be right. Um, and then when you drill into the, the actual science, um, then, you know, it just falls apart. Well, this is what kind of baffled me. And, and we've been being told to follow the science, follow the science. Now, those of us that work in the medicine field know that medicine and science, they work in tandem. So science will say you need to do this and medicine will say, yeah, that's great. But trying to make this happen from a populi that has such varied demographics, it's not as easy as just doing a, uh, a, a sum or a, an experiment on uh, from the science aspect. So they've always been intertwined and they're always pulling each other backwards and forth. Yeah. But I, I never liked the idea of we need to follow the science when we're yeah. dealing with, oh, yeah. with medicine. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, you know, the, the, rarely there's consensus when it comes to science. So some... So some reason overnight, we have this body called science, which is going to tell us what to do. Like it's never happened before. So being in science, being a man of science uh, in medicine, you know, I can see that it's just kind of just rhetoric, you know, just baloney rhetoric, empty. Uh, I was astonished at just how many doctors were kind of uh, taken by this, you know, hook, line and sinker, you know, unquestioningly. And it's something about the psychology of doctors, which we, we can move on to, and I'll talk about in the film with Kate. Um, uh, it's kind of gullible, um, uh, mindless, you know, actions by doctors. Um, uh, and you know, th this was, uh, you know, just you know, just so clear that um, uh, you know, it, you know, if we're talking about kind of red flags, kind of what is it that kind of builds our attention? Like, you know, what kind of keeps keeps me up at night? You know, it's these kinds of things. You know, you know, without doubt, it's these kinds of things. So, obviously, you you're quite aware of what was going on at the beginning. How did did you did you shout about it at the start? Did you try and speak to your colleagues about it? And if you did, what what kind of reception were you met with? I mean, I I think I know, but <laughs> I think it's important everyone knows. Well, it was it was difficult to have kind of discussions and dialogue. Um, uh, people weren't interested. Um, uh, because as I kind of uh, referred, everyone you kind of took this on face value, you know, without questioning. Um, and uh, the the so my my initial was um, my initial response was just try and cope with things as they are and see what's coming. And you know, I did do some kind of local community kind of appearances on local TV, and you know, j just to kind of get people, you know, to talking about people's mental health because I was really kind of concerned about the impact on that. Um, so that was my, that was my, I guess, uh, first kind of speaking out. It was more around mental health rather than, you know, what was going on. Because I think, you know, there is, um, you know, it was difficult, you know, I have to say, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. And, I, you know, I just don't think I was brave enough at that time to to speak out. And also I was forming my own, you know, opinions around what was going on. And, you know, there was so much information coming out and a lot of it was quite overwhelming. And, you know, um, but so I, I didn't really speak out you know, in a kind of direct way at the beginning, you know, and it's something that, you know, I think there's a lot of shame around that, you know, for me, um, uh, you know, as as someone, you know, just as a doctor, someone who's who's been given that platform and that responsibility, you know, it's and it's quite shameful that I didn't say anything explicitly at the start. Um, um, and, you know, I find that, you know, difficult to, to think about and to talk about. Um, but it, it increasingly became untenable. 
Uh, and, you know, like most people, um, when it gets closer to you, you know, you get, you know, you're more likely to have a responsive vote. So, um, you know, whereas it was in China and then it was here in the UK and then uh, it was, you know, affecting your family. Uh, my kids couldn't go to school. So it's going to get closer and closer. And I guess the point where it kind of got to, well, my job, um, you know, that, that for me was, I guess, the kind of biting point. Uh, and I think it's shameful to say, really, that you had to get so close, you know, for me to kind of react in a way. Uh, and so when when my uh, I was told that I needed to take a job uh, to keep my job, um, you know, you know I, I kind of had to kind of speak out and say, look, you know, there's no chance this is happening. Uh, and so I started some dialogue up with the trust around that. Uh, but, you know, wasn't getting anywhere um, quick. Um, uh, and then the closer it got to losing my job, the more kind of vocal I became uh, and annoyed. Uh, and the more senior people I spoke to, they kind of, you know, I've just kind of, you know, you know disappointed, really, at the, um, I wouldn't call it, you know, the maliciousness, really. It's not really negligence or ignorance. It's maliciousness and this tyranny of, middle management in the NHS, you know, just really kind of, you know, expose its kind of ugly face to me. Um, and, you know, so, so, so that, yeah, so that was kind of my journey along and, you know, we can talk into, talk about some of the specifics of that because it's kind of, I think it's quite, quite an interesting kind of, kind of journey. It is because like, like I said, I mentioned to you before, I'm good friends with Dr. Dave Cartland. And when I first started being vocal about my feelings, Back in, I think it was April 20, I think, is when I first started realising what was going on. But I was still wrapped up in everything like the beginning. Um, at the time, I was doing home visits. So I was going into care homes and seeing what was going on there. And it, they were like um, battle zones, you know. It was just, it, you could smell the the kind of illness. Uh, and my friends who work in A&E, they said the same. It just smelt like there was death everywhere. You know, there very much was something going on. Um but very quickly they developed different ways of determining whether they were just exacerbations of pre-existing conditions or whether it was actually COVID itself. But we can talk about that later. But the main thing, how was your family's yeah. response to, to, to you starting to speak out and stuff as well? Because I think that's an interesting one. Yeah, I know for many families it's been very difficult. It's been very divisive, even to the point where husband and wife have really fallen out in a major way. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate that uh, I'm from from a I'm from a big family, kind of. The, there's five siblings, um, and you know, each of us. You know, we, we, there's actually a synergy there in terms of the way we we saw this, not through influencing each other, but coming through our own experiences. And I kind of put that down to, um, uh, I guess, the way we were raised, um, uh, and kind of having a very kind of clear sense of what's right and what's wrong. Um, and so, so I've been quite fortunate. Actually, most of my family um has uh, has has the same kind of mindset and kind of viewpoint as i do but i know it's been a really really big um for a lot of people uh, even to the point where uh, some people have you know had to take the jab because they want to see their family you know it's got to that point um but but i've been i've been very fortunate when it when it comes to that you're lucky uh, i've realized i didn't finish the point with with dr day but basically he was at the time i was trying to speak out he was desperately wanting to speak out as a doctor um, and it was interesting trying to send us a, co a coaxing to try and come out, but he was having exactly the same issues and, and concerns with obviously financial implications and things. But I think for him, when he started seeing physical people coming in with multiple clots and 
and spontaneous bleeds and, and then they're going after the children. That was enough for him. And then when he finally dipped his toe in, that's it. He's, he's, he's away and doing what he's going to do. But I remember egging him on um, and, and, and fe feeling the general sort of the turmoil, the, the, the tearing in him between wanting to speak out and, and then knowing that he's probably going to, you know, jeopardize his career, which, you know, he did. Um, but he's still speaking out now. So you were lucky because no one in my family, apart from my wife, um, really kind of, they listen, but they don't, they, they, they thought they've all taken it and they'll continue to take it. Um, but my wife didn't, um, she wasn't on the same page for me with me for about 12 months. Um, but when we, when she finally, you know, we are in a good place now, we talk about that as a situation and it was, it was the fear around admitting or even contemplating that something like that was going to happen um so i think for, for many people it's actually accepting that that could be a possibility which you know invokes lots of control issues and you know just obviously being fearful of your government um so you were you were very lucky <laughs> to be honest with you but you know you've you've um you've touched on this before but um i wanted to to, to go into it a little bit more so the whole consent thing and you made a, you made a very good point in the film um, and I don't mean to keep referring to the film, but honestly, it's full of so many good things that you've said. Um, how does someone with dementia have informed consent when obviously the power of attorney usually is with someone else in the family that probably won't be there because they're in a care home? So how does consent work, you know, in that capacity and, and informed consent? So so usually, um, so I've worked with uh, in kind of all people's kind of mental health wards and with a lot of kind of dementia patients and usually there's when it comes to any uh, intervention where the person doesn't have the capacity to weigh up the decision and and uh, and, and to articulate what they want uh, then there's a, a meeting usually held called a best interest meeting where you have all the clinical people involved and the family to try and discuss the issue um, and to and to make a decision uh, ostensibly in the best interest of that individual um, and so that's how it how it usually works, and I think that's that's how it's continuing to work. But the issue is um, the issue is around the understanding of the people making decisions around something which is uh, brand spanking new that we don't have any data on. You know, that's the issue. That's the issue. Um, you know, how it's an, it's informed consent for individuals, but also um, you know, I have the the, the issue that I have. It, even more than that is the um, decision making that doctors do and the efforts they make or the lack of to try and find out details um, rather than just accepting what you're being told. Uh, and, you know, I've been very clear from the, from the beginning that we wouldn't have got into this mess or anywhere near the mess and the hole that we got in, into if doctors just did their job properly, if they did their due diligence. You know, if they had the balls, you know, to, to stand to their principles, because we've thrown everything in the bin, we've thrown informed consent in the bin, uh, we've uh, thrown evidence-based medicine in the bin, you know, with its limitations, because we, we talked about science, we're talking about science before, and science gives us facts of stuff. Uh, medicine isn't just using facts, it's how do you interpret it, it's, and how do you apply it to your patient, it's an art. Um, medicine is an art, but we've lost the art. Uh, where instead we're, we're shuffled kind of facts from, um, or, or you know, 
facts on the surface because uh, you know being involved in research so I've been involved in research I write papers you know I do research I'm still doing things now so I understand the mechanisms and the process processes behind that um, you know there's no foolproof study there's no there's no scientific fact that you know um, that's come through the process of research and statistics that you know just stands there by itself uh, kind of shining that look you know I'm the whole truth and nothing but the truth um, you know it's about interpretation and and that's where the art of medicine comes what do you have how do you understand that how do you manage how do you use that in your practice for the best interest of your patient you know not for your government not for big pharma you know not for anyone else but for your patient and we failed we've absolutely failed on our basic responsibilities that the public looks up to us you know so if your doctor is telling you something of course there must um no of course it must be the right thing to do because surely they know if out of anyone what the best thing for me is because i put that trust in them and we failed our patients miserably and we should be ashamed um and it's the biggest issue i have we wouldn't have been in this mess if doctors had done their jobs properly um and you know i, I think it's unforgivable and i think the damage this has done uh to the to the field of medicine um is i think irreparable um uh and you know it's uh, you know it's a crime you know it is a crime um but unfortunately i don't think anyone will be held accountable for it you know everyone's hiding behind oh this is i was just told to do this you know my manager told me to do this or the uh public health england told me to do this or the government told me to do this you know everyone's hiding behind everyone else and then at the top of it there's no liability you know for taking uh unproven uh gene therapy it's what it is i'm sorry it's not vaccine it's gene therapy you know so, so yeah so no no go on sorry I, I didn't mean to interrupt go on sorry no no sorry. so yeah so it, so it just kind of it, it, you know this is the biggest issue i have uh that doctors have failed um and you know who, who's going to be there to pick up the pieces uh because there's no signs that the doctors are in any mood to do that to admit that they're wrong a doctors hate admitting uh, the only thing they hate more than admitting they're wrong is admitting they don't know anything <laughs> it's true yeah so uh, and so so things aren't going to change and we're seeing you know signs now of you know the same thing you know the same threats from the same people um coming at, you know it's um it, it's creeping up again and the same doctors are falling for it and, and that's why I had to leave the NHS. That's why I had to leave my university job uh, because I, I couldn't work uh, with mindless people, um, people that were reveling in the destruction of medicine um, and people who were succumbing to authority without question. And I saw all of this. I, I just couldn't be parted to it anymore. You know, I couldn't get up to the mirror and look at my face, you know, look at my kids and know what I was kind of involved with. You know, it just, you know, it just became too much. And, you know, I knew I knew I was going to go. It was just kind of how. Um, um, yeah. I can feel you there, mate. I've um, I've had a couple of interviews for other jobs. I think it's when you you feel like an accomplice, don't you, to a crime, even though you've not done anything physically yeah. wrong. Yeah. It, you know, I've had new I've had, I, I'm going to bear some I've had numerous complaints before um, for things where I've, I thought I've been giving people information. The patients then gone away and been afraid and not wanted to take certain things and 
you know, the information gets paraphrased in the wrong kind of way and you try and give impartial advice and, and then, you know, it comes back to bite you like that because it's, it's not the advice they wanted you to give them. Um, and then, so then we need to start to, you know, I can't encourage them. I don't discourage people to take it, but I don't encourage them to take it either. I just encourage them to do some more reading yes. um, because we can't be advocates of uh, freedom of choice, but then tell someone not to do something. You know, we've got to give them the, they've got to make their own informed consent and their own informed decisions, providing they've been given all the information. But yeah. I, I, I agree with you that I felt like a bit of an, and I still do feel like a bit of an accomplice. Um, but you talk about, the systematic dismantling of medicine, which I thought was a really good statement and a really good sentence. Can you kind of elaborate on that as to why you, you kind of felt that? I know you've obviously described with your colleagues and things, but what sort of stuff was it that you were seeing that, that made you think, actually, this is being destroyed from the inside out? So it's first principles. Um, so as a doctor, you know, first of all, you do no harm. You see, you know, it's better to do nothing uh, than, than do harm. And you know, uh, somewhere along the line, we accept uh, iatrogenic harm, which is basically, you know, doctors making decisions that hurt people, that harm people, that kill people, you know, doctors killing people. It's a reality. You know, it gets uh, shoved under the carpet, um, you know, but there's papers out there, you know, it's easy to, you know, enough to kind of search looking at the um, thousands of people that are uh, hurt by decisions made by doctors, um, surgeries that have gone wrong, you know, medication that gives bad side effects, deaths that happen. It's a reality, but we don't want to kind of face up to it. You know, it's kind of too much. So we kind of sh shove that under the uh, under the carpet. Uh, and, and that's something that's been kind of, you know, this is something I talk about when I kind of teach my students. You know, I've got kind of lectures on these kinds of things. Uh, so so for me, you know, it, I already had kind of this kind of kind of sense of, you know, me medicine isn't what it should be. Uh, and then we have this ho whole um, uh, situation with, uh, with the pandemic and, you know, everything just goes out the window where, we're advocating something uh, that has lots of red flags or potential harm, and you take it. I'm not going to question it. You take it. I can't tell you what's going to happen to you. I can't tell you how good it is, apart from the people making it telling me that it's fantastic. Um, and then on top of that, um, we've got we've got doctors across the world who are saying, "Look, if you get sick, you know, take this. You know, take some of these vitamins." Take this well-established, you know, 50-year-old medication, uh, and I'm using it on my patients, and they're doing great. You know, what we do is we ban that speech. We ban uh, access to those medications, which are very, very safe, proven safe and effective. Uh, we uh, we poo-poo on the importance of supplements and vitamins, you know, which are very powerful hormones in our body, you know. Vitamin D, we call it a vitamin, but it really acts like a like a hormone. Um, and and we 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 it's radio silence when it comes to early treatment. What do we tell people to do? Stay at home. If you get sick, might put you on ventilator, which will kill you because that's what happened. Um, so he was us. Well, well, okay, fine. But this principle of doing no harm, you know, is it was the thing that you know was ejected first, and when once that goes. You know, what else is there? You know, there's no foundation. Um, and it was just inexplicable why people who, who get up there, you know, government, you know, senior medical scientists, you know, whoever it is, whatever name it is, it doesn't matter who they are. You know, they're all going to say the same thing. Yeah, and it's it's unforgivable. 
you know, we could have we could have managed this, you know, without the need for any gene therapy. Um, something that has a very low infection fatality rate, you know, something which is just slightly more than flu for over 65s and less than flu for under 65. That's what we're dealing with. Is is just uh, not commensurate. The response is not commensurate to the problem, um, and that's you know it's not medicine. You know we're the ones who are supposed to have the level head, and to give the context. But instead, we're just foot soldiers. We're just told what to do. I think that's become that's become very apparent with with the rollout of the jab and everything else because there's been some conversations. I've been so I'm pretty clued up with vitamin D and and things anyway because there's 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 been lots of evidence prior to this um that you can look up on that says those of us in the northern hemisphere are more susceptible to low vitamin d yeah um just because the lack of sun um <clears throat> that's why certain demographics who reside in the north were more at risk because they require excuse me <clears throat> they require more vitamin d than we would do which is what made them more susceptible well they said to covid but they'd be more susceptible to anything because obviously with low vitamin d your, your immune system isn't functioning as well as it could do and that's um, why we have flu season you see, you know. Yes. Yeah. Being a flu season in the summer. Yeah. It's one way of trying to understand it for sure. Yeah, exactly. But they, everyone just accepts it. Oh, it's flu season. It's like, no, it's the season where you're getting less sun. So you're more susceptible to getting things. So if you just take some vitamin D and some, you know, look after yourself, you, you'd, you'd be surprised. But what I found um, interesting was when I was speaking to them about vitamin K2 and things like that, you know, not many doctors knew about vitamin K2. And then when I spoke to my other doctor colleagues, they actually told me they do very little on nutrition uh supplementation and things like that in in their whole kind of um medical you know um doctorate and things like that so i was a bit surprised at that but then when you look at the way as you mentioned earlier we are with medicine at the moment where it's i won't offer you um we won't go and see what the, the root cause of the problem is i'll just offer you a symptom manager you know like you said high blood pressure give you a tablet rather than asking what your you know your mobility is like what your exercise like what your diet like so we don't try and treat the source. We just try and treat the symptoms, which, you know, invariably it goes wrong. Um, and obviously you talked about prevention um, and things as well. I That was a big bugbearer of mine that we were told to shut up, stay in the house, basically wait till you can't breathe and then and then phone an ambulance, which by that time, you know, you, you're going to be riddled with pneumonia and you're going to be in a problem. Do you think simply just issuing free vitamin D to the over 65s would have had a big impact on uh, on the reductions of, of COVID and severity? Well, the, the evidence suggests so. I think it's not controversial to say. Um, and actually, we're all pretty low on vitamin D, most of us here in England. you know. Um, again, that's not a controversial thing to say. Um, uh, but just on that point, you know, your intro to that question is beautiful. It touched on some really kind of core issues that you know, doctors... We don't really know anything about health, okay? We can, we can elicit symptoms and we can give a diagnosis based upon a manual and then based upon that diagnosis, we can follow a protocol to give you some drugs or tell you to do good, uh, some positive lifestyle changes, okay, which anyone can say, which is applicable actually to everyone. We all should be having optimizing our lifestyle factors. That's what doctors do. That's what we're trained to do. So what we're not trained in is understanding the importance of nutrition. We don't get taught nutrition uh, in medical school. We don't get taught anything about supplements, vitamins, nutrients at all. Uh, maybe on a uh, in your first couple of years where you're doing 
preclinical lectures that you come across, you know, maybe some nutrients mentioned somewhere in some big kind of biochemical diagram that you learn for an exam and then forget, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I did, but I think I've forgotten. You know? <laughs> I've forgotten it now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we don't get taught anything about viruses. We don't get taught anything about vaccines. We get told what vaccines need to be given when, and that's the long and the short of it. Uh, and actually what's even more worrying is that I looked at the syllabus um, and I think this is consistent across medical schools where there's an, a, 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 an, an explicit uh, learning objective where doctors need to under, need to promote this way of understanding um, the response to viruses and illness, that vaccines are the answer and that actually any other way of looking at things you know, is discouraged. You know, and, and you say I was kind of shocked to kind of see that that there was some impression there that this is the way and this is the only thing that you need to know about this. Um, and so, so when it comes to how equipped are doctors in dealing with, you know, um, an understanding with what's happened over the last couple of years, the answer is not very well, and that was quite demonstrable in the way that we reacted. Um, so there's one thing. If you can accept and say, look, I don't know, but we didn't do that. We're like, okay, you know, do this, stay home, you know, get away from me. I'm going to put this nappy on my face, you know, like it's going to make a difference because the evidence isn't there. So you start doing things when you don't know what to do, when you have no knowledge. Okay, so when it comes to what doctors actually know um, and what we're trained in medical school, we're not really trained or taught anything about nutrition the importance of um, nutrients, minerals, the importance of toxins that affect the brain and the systems that we have. Uh, we're not taught anything about virology, really. We don't really know anything about viruses. Uh, we don't know anything uh, about vaccines, and the history of vaccines, the pros and cons. All we're taught, really, is what's scheduled to give when, because you know, there's no discussion to be had. You see, you know, this is uh, medical fact. You know, you do it. This is your job. Um, so you get you get told uh, how to recognise symptoms um, and how to treat them with drugs or surgery. Um, we we have we've lost the sense of really what health is. Um, so when we when we look at well, how prepared in that case, you know, our doctors in in really dealing with and responding to uh, a pandemic over the last kind of you know couple of years, uh, and the answer is not very well. You know, and it's one thing for doctors to say, okay, fine, you know, actually, I don't know anything about this. You know, I'd have more credit for someone to say, who says that, you know. Um, but what happened was doctors continue to pretend uh, that they know what they're doing. Uh, and when you have no basis, no knowledge base, um, no confidence, you'll just end up doing uh, what looks good. You'll end up doing what you're being told uh, by either your your um, middle management who are non-clinical people if you work in the NHS or you listen to your government uh, or you listen to you know whoever is going to make you look good because there's a lot of pressure for doctors to do the right thing so that's when we end up wearing um, fa fabrics on our face that we think that's going to protect us somehow you know it's ridiculous you know I haven't worn a mask I refuse to because I, you can't have self-dignity you know, as a doctor knowing that a mask does sweet FA and then you're walking around 
in, in front of your patients in public. Uh, I mean, you know, you might as well just, you know, just give it up because then what's the point? You're just pretending and you're pretending like every other politician. Politicians pretend that they care about people. You know, doctors, you know, are supposed to, supposed to care about people. But when you start doing silly things like that, what does that, what does that tell someone like me? It's like, you don't really care because you don't really know what you're doing. You haven't spent the time and you don't have the integrity. Um, so my, um, you know, my respect for a lot of doctors has, has kind of gone really, you know, over the last couple of years. You know, I've not worn a mask. The evidence is clear. It was clear beforehand. We only wear masks as a splash protector. You know, if you're, you know, doing some surgery, you know, you don't want to inhale someone's blood or kind of, you know, stuff from, you know, from, um, from the area of the surgery. You know, it's not to protect you against some, uh, you know, unseen airborne virus. It is absurd. And, and the evidence was clear. And I remember there were lots of videos on like, there was a TED talk, amazing TED talk about talking about masks and kind of viruses. And they were just like taking the mic, you know, some world expert taking the mic out of people who wear, they started to call them like uh, uh, nappies on, on people's faces. And so the only thing they give you is kind of spots around here, you know, yeah. because all the sweat. And, um, and, and so, so then, you know, we will start advocating things which are just ludicrous that, you know, aren't evidence-based. And then if you don't do it, you're ostracized, you know, and so then what's gone, there's some inversion of reality that's gone on. And I mentioned in the film that, you know, is this like a bad Doctor Who episode? That's the only thing that I can refer it to. You know, that you see these bizarre things happening in Doctor Who and you think, wow, you know, imagine a world like that. And the next thing you know, we're in the middle of it, you know, where you can't, you can't hug your grandmother. You can't see your family. And that actually, you know, you're happily, you happily do that. So it's this kind of brainwashing. It's like a spell. It's like a spell. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, amongst everything, I think the, the biggest thing, and from, as a psychiatrist, as someone who, who tries, you know, to understand the human mind and the brain, you know, who tries, and I think that's a, an operative word, you know, because um, we don't really understand these things well. Uh, but someone who tries, I think it's very clear to see that the biggest thing that the last couple of years, it's, it's certainly been a psychological operation. It's been psychological warfare, you know, on, on the mass population. Um, and, you know, it's not my opinion. It is a fact. So we've got um, government advisory bodies, like the spy B. You know, sounds very sinister. But that's what they call themselves. You know, I think they're probably poor man's kind of James, James Bond wannabes, you know, in these kind of groups, um, giving themselves these titles, sage. There's nothing sage about sage. <laughs> unless, you're, unless you're talking about the vegetable, you know. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's an amazing book by uh, Laura Dodsworth, yeah, and he kind of outlines. It's called a state of fear, and he yeah, yeah. outlines the briefings that were given to the to the government, you know, from the, their own group, um, you know, telling them that look, people aren't going to listen to you when it comes to lockdowns. You know, they're not going to do what you're asking them to do, uh, so you have to make them shit scared, and then they will do with what do whatever you want them to. And that's what happened. And it got to the point 
and it's difficult, you know, to think, you know, to say this. You know, it got to the point where like neighbours were calling the police on their neighbours. The police. And the police, you know, another mindless kind of part of the system, they will do whatever they're told. Neighbour calling the police on their neighbour because, what, they're not wearing a mask? Or they're hugging their grandmother? What world do we fall into? Kind of wormhole. It's unbelievable. And it's very easy now to forget all of that. Oh, oh, it's gone. You know, like, it's just disappeared. Well, where's it gone? It's just gone. You know, just like the flu disappeared over the last two years. Went to zilch. I mean, we need to wake up. We just need to wake up. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you know, it's an inversion of reality. Um, and, you know, there's one thing, you know, adults making decisions you know albeit kind of ill ill thought out uh, ill informed uh, there's another thing the impact that all of this has on our children um, i have no sympathy for adults who want to do whatever they want to do but for our children you know what have they done to endure this uh, and the psychological consequences uh, i think we're only you know we won't see now we are seeing uh, but it's just the tip of the iceberg that the um, the need for children and adolescent mental health services, I mean, it was a crumbling system anyway, but it's just completely overrun. There's no one there to look after our kids. Um, but the, the longer-term consequences when these children become adults, you know, we will see the fallout more and more. Um, and part of what I do, my job, is essentially dealing with people who have problems which are grounded in their childhood. So imagine you had a childhood where uh, you were you were guilt tripped. Just like you can't see your grandmother because you might pass on something to her that will kill her. And you know like, what if you were a child that saw your grandmother, and then a few weeks later she died. You were told you were carrying something invisible that you could pass on to her. You know what if you broke the rules? What if you told no one? What if your grandmother said it's okay? You know, just come. You know, it's only for five minutes. You know, I haven't seen you for weeks. We'll just have a hug. Imagine you did that and no one knew and then she died. You know, what would that do to you? Because as far as you're concerned, you killed your own grandmother. You know, it's horrendous. And, you know, I, I, you know, you know, it is, it is, I think we're just seeing the, the tip of the iceberg. And I think we need to be careful around getting ourselves into these situations again in the future. Um, I was just letting you let you carry because there's some gold dynamite stuff in there. You're 100 percent right. Have it, the decisions that you that you make through life, when um, a decision based on fear is different than a decision based on reason, and a lot of decisions that were were, were given to us, we had to make people made through fear, and you can tell. Um, and when I used to go into some of the the uh, old folks' homes. Um, and to do to treat them in their houses, and that, that, that initially they'd have the BBC on all the time with the death count going across the bottom of the screen. And I used to say to him, "Turn it off, man," because it'd be yeah. on all day, all day. They'd be told how many people are dying this week, how many people are dying that week, and we try and speak to them about it, saying, "Look, you know, on average, this many people die a week anyway." 
uh, and then you try and explain to them that the, the if if the deaths would go up continuously together, so COVID would be here and heart failure would be here, and they went up like this, that would be fine. But if everything else went like this, and then COVID just went up like this, it's obvious mm. they've just moved the deaths from here to there. But but people just couldn't get their head around the fact that they would be lied to like that, or the government would would manipulate them, and the whole and I can imagine being someone who has relied on the health service for a period of time as being elderly, it, you know, knowing that they're the one people that you trust to help you might actually unintentionally or intentionally be get out to get you. Um, I can imagine making people feel, you know, horrendous. Well, it's, it's too much. It's, it's too much for people to take. Uh, that on one level, you have to accept that at least part, if not all of the life you thought you had, you know, was a lie. Like, who wants to accept that i wouldn't want to accept that and to ask someone who's whatever stage 60 years 70 years to say well actually you know the life that you just led you know all those taxes you were paying you know for your government who was supposed to be looking after you and your family and the systems that you believed in actually what if they weren't the way you thought they were i mean who wants to accept that it's too much for people it's too much to accept even that even when you know, even when it, it's in your face. So, so there's one thing about you know having a crit critical mind and think, well, actually, you know, things don't add up. Red flags. Okay, fine. There's another thing when you get slapped in the face with it once, twice, thrice, and you're still taking it. Okay, so um, you know, we saw what man ha Matt Hancock was up to, and I was I was chuckled when you know we say his name because you know it's, it's quite kind of apt, really, isn't it? Um, but then, you know, we're seeing now what uh, um, uh, Boris Johnson was up to, you know, and so, and they're not the only ones, do you think they're the only ones, the only ones being caught, or the only ones that have been kind of um, thrown to the wolves. Um, so what you're seeing is, okay, you know, we've got this major threat here, we've got a big situation, we've got our politicians who are making the big decisions. Okay, so then why are they behaving differently? Why is there this dissonance? The only reason there's a dissonance is they don't believe a word of what they're saying. They don't think there's a risk here. They don't think social distancing does anything. They don't think wearing a mask saves you from anything. And so, you, so you know, it's in your face. You get slapped over the face with it. But the people making the rules don't believe in it, are doing their own thing. But yet you still believe. You know, it's like a cult. It's like an abusive relationship where it gets to the point where you're so enmeshed with your abuser. And I see this a lot, you know, a lot of people that I work with, you know, it's all about relationships, you know, so I'm not talking about kind of theory or just, you know, something in my head. It's just how it works. Um, it's like an abusive relationship. So you can keep getting abused and that just reinforces the bond that you have. It gets twisted and it's sick. Um, and, and that's, it's, it's, what's happening so you either get out or you stay in and the longer you stay in the more it kind of reinforces uh and you're in trouble because you know you life is ruined and unless you're able to get out of the cycle and this is the thing so when when you're out of it and uh, unplugged from the matrix is what i like to say um because that's that's essentially what it's like and, and that in, in itself is a journey um to get to a level playing field where you can function through life because trust me when you fall down the rabbit holes alice in wonderland is a very big underestimation of <laughs> what it's actually really like and the stuff that's out there to 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 to, to see
but it's the the lack of conversation that I struggle with with people. So my dad, I love him. He's brilliant. He's amazing. But he thinks that it was complete global in incompetence of all the governments as to why we're here now. And I had the same issue as what you mentioned at the beginning. I was like, in lockstep, dad, every government's equally as incompetent as each other. Yep. Yep. So when you're dealing with that kind of, I, I don't want to say dissidents because, because he's a very, very, he's one of the smartest guys I know. But I think when you're trying to mess with someone's sort of fabric of reality to what they know it is, it's very, very difficult. So trying to say to them, look, just put your opinions to the side for a brief period of time so we can have an adult conversation about this where you will eventually start asking the questions that you need to ask. Do you think there's a lot of buyer's remorse and a buyer's regret in there as well from people that have been invested in it, thinking it was the right thing to do? And now they're starting to realise, actually, and it's just a pandemic of people who can't admit they were wrong. I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, no one likes to admit they made a mistake, um, especially when it comes to you know, something as big as this. So, you know, in order to kind of survive, you know, ourselves, um, you know, we just tell ourselves it was fine. Um, people don't easily admit mistakes, and I think that's a big part of it as well. Um, and you know. <sighs> You know, but it's not their fault, though, either, is it? That's the thing. They were intentionally kind of lied to, really. So it, it, that's that's the thing, is it's not like you've not made a mistake. You were kind of coerced into making that mistake. Yeah. Kind of thing. And, and I would like to say that I'm in a very fortunate position. Like, it may sound as though I'm saying some things kind of flippantly or I'm kind of ju judging people. Not at all. You know, I know how lucky I am, you know, to be a doctor, to be an academic, to be involved in this kind of field, you know, where I have access to resources, information, have access. I know which are credible sources of information, people, doctors, who are going to give me an unbiased, objective view. Uh, so I'm very fortunate. So I don't judge anyone for any reason, you know, um, in terms of the decisions they've made. You know, we can try and understand what's gone on and why people are still in uh, these kind of states of, it's a conflict, you know. Uh, but it's not a judgment, because I would be in exactly the same place as your dad if I mm. had his life experience, right? Mm. It's not about the individual, you see? Um, so there's no judgment at all. Everyone who's, had, who's gone along with things out of fear, um, you know, out of desperation, whatever, um, I don't judge. Well, who I do judge are the people that pretend to care for those people. So I judge the doctors and I judge the politicians, you know, and I have, no mercy for any of them, for what they've done to us. Yeah. Uh, but the everyday person, no. But in terms of trying to understand why people are in these kind of situations, you know, and, and why they're still in part of this mindset. It's like, uh, um, we talk about the psychological operation, psychological warfare. I mean, there's a, there's a, whole, there's a whole science to that. And, and part of it is this kind of stagecraft, okay? So we had the, the, the briefings, um, Everything was laid out in a particular way. We had the colours. We had the colours, the red, the um, yellow, and the black. Uh, we had the three words. You know, we had things repeated over and over again. You know, it's a type of stagecraft that allows the spell to carry on with people. And we don't have to get more technical than that. You know, I'm a man of science. I'm talking about spells, but but this is, you know, it's a type of spell. You can call it whatever you want, but it's something that takes over that appeals to people's uh, irrational mind you know what's the irrational mind it's your emotion your, your emotional centers of your brain 
Um, and everything we encounter in life gets filtered through the emotional center first. So if that gets uh, triggered, um, then your, your, your rational mind goes offline. And we know this mechanism. Uh, and you know, working with lots of people with anxieties and depression and negative thoughts, it's about challenging that initial filter that comes through. Um, so when you have something that appeals so strongly to someone's emotional sense, you know, the, the logic and rationale goes out the window. Uh, and then to backtrack on that, you know, it's very hard. You know, I don't know whether I'd be able to do that. You know, but I can't judge other people for not being able to do it. Um, but what we can do is um, try best to to make sure we don't end up in the same mess again. So, you know, okay, it's fine not to admit anything, but when this happens again, you know, when someone comes to take away your basic rights, when someone comes to pitch you against your neighbor, when someone comes to damage your children, think twice next time. You know, that's, you know, we have to learn. Life is, you know, it's just a big learning experience. Um, and we all make mistakes. We're always making mistakes. That's how we learn. We don't learn from doing things right because you don't know it was right unless you fail. So, you know, we, and I think that has to be the focus. You know, we don't want people to admit anything just to themselves. That's enough. And then to make sure we don't end up in the same uh, same circus again. This, yeah, this, this is the, this is the thing, and I think. What I've found interesting with the two sides, which I don't like to say size, but that's where we've been kind of pushed towards. And you could see that at the beginning, it was pro-vax, anti-vax, pro-mask, anti-mask, pro-lockdown. Everything was, you know, left or right, left or right. You know, you had to pick a side. You couldn't be in the middle, um, which is another tactic they choose is what they do as well, which is try and make you pick a side. Um, if you sit on the fence, they don't like that. They want you to pick a side because it creates more more division. But one thing that I found interesting was, is the, the the one side that was more open-minded to the possibility that we weren't being told everything weren't as hostile to the other side as they were to us, if that makes sense. So we could just turn around and say something like, well, you know, it could be gene therapy. Um, it could be this. Oh, you're one of them, are you? And they'd instantly be met with that kind of hostility, um, which I found really interesting because it's like, you know, if someone has had their jab, I, I, it doesn't bother me. If someone believes in it, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't make me instantly hate them. But the other way round, um, the, the 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 hostility you would get from just expressing a, a one foot outside the current narrative, you, I, I couldn't understand where that kind of came from. But do you think that was part of the psychological kind of programming um, that they were doing was to kind of make them almost hate us, really? It's essential. Um, so, you know, we all hear about, you know, divide and conquer. Um I mean, these are not sophisticated strategies, you see. They're kind of very basic. Um, so we have a, an internal sense of uh, uh, our in-group, so who we have that we associate with, and then everyone else is the other. Uh, and every day on a, uh, on a psychological basis, we make judgments that reinforce our in-group, that keep, that keep maintain our self-esteem and self-confidence. So if something goes good, we're going to attribute it to ourselves. If something goes bad, we're going to attribute it to the other. You know, we have this mechanism in us, and all this does is magnifies that um, on an on a, on a emotional scale. So that's why we, that's why actually very few people were in the middle, you know, because we gravitate to being part of a group. 
Uh, yeah. And so when you lay out two options for people um, and the way that it plans out, you know, it becomes very strong that actually it's more than just me now in the group. You know, it's all these other people and we have safety in numbers. Um, and so I think it's an integral part of the psychological operation, psychological warfare. You have to divide people. Um, and then you have to uh, ostracize the other group uh, in, a, in an absolute way. That actually, you know, everything that comes out of your mouth, uh, your mouth is bad. I can't hear it. It has to be absolute. Uh, and kind of vice versa as well. You know, these group dynamics play out on both, both sides. Um, and then it's uh, what comes with the rhetoric, um, the kind of name calling, or you're an anti-vaxxer. Like that means you're, what connotations for that? It's just derogatory, you know, anti-vaxxer, what, you're stupid, you're dumb, yeah. you just listen to whatever you're told, uh, you don't believe in science, whatever, you know. And then you have the same, uh, you know, you've got, you've got some doctors going around saying, oh, you know, everyone's in a mass psychosis. You know, I think that's a derogatory term. You know, you just you're just using a different name to name call the other side. It doesn't make sense. No one's in a mass psychosis. You know, people are just making things up. And again, it doesn't mean they don't have anything positive to say. Uh, but life is nuanced. They're not black and white. But the way the psychological operation gets set up, it appeals to that primitive side, that easy side where you don't have to think. You just have to go on your emotion. So I take this side and accept everything they say. That's easy. It's harder to try and, you know, as we've been talking about, to try and find some understanding. It takes time. It takes effort. You know, when you're worried about your job, when you're worried about your life, who's got the time? Actually, we all got the time because no one's at work. We're just, paid, we're just paid to sit and to watch Netflix. You know, mm. and then we were, we were paid to go out and eat. And then we were told we couldn't eat and go out. And we're told to sit and we were paid some more to watch Netflix. It's a circus. That's it. That's if we're talking about psychological operation, you know, it's, you know, these are integral parts of it. We give you free money. Just do what you're told. Actually, we'll give you money to eat out. Now you can go out and get some air. It's not sophisticated, but it's all part of it. It appeals to you, but free money, free food. You know, free Netflix, uh, Netflix for two pounds or three pounds a month. Watch any film you want. You can binge on these series. You know, box set, whatever. What a life! You know, what a life indeed. I think there's there there was something I heard from someone. I can't remember who said it, but he said we 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 can't control how we feel when we hear things emotionally, but we can control how we react to those things. And I think fear creates a bit of a block to certain parts of your brain because all you're thinking about is self-preservation rather than common sense and a bit more of a holistic thing. And what I found hilarious is it was all about health. It was all about health, but yet McDonald's stayed open. Domino stayed open. They all delivered to your house. So, you, you, they're not, you know, we're all promoting health here, but eat really unhealthy stuff. Um, and it was two tandems. I was like, can you not just see that they just want us all to just sit at home and shut up for a bit while they do whatever it is they want to do. And, for us to sit there and think we weren't going to have to pay back this furlough money was just really naive of us, you know, and, and there are lots of countries around the world that didn't get nothing um, and still aren't getting anything. 
So I just find it an interest how England's always a little bit behind the majority. Like we're just at the back of the pack, just scuffing along, seeing what everyone else does. Well, well I think everyone is playing a role. So um, mm. if you look at Australia, for example, gosh, you know, we think we had it bad here. You know, so there's right. certain there's certain countries that are playing certain roles, and uh, you know Australia. Unfortunately for the Australian people, you know, is one country, and New Zealand as well. Uh, you know, were chosen to you know play you know the more extreme role um, in this kind of story, um, um, and 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 yeah, I think you know we had a role to play, uh, and. You know, this was, you know, it was, it was clearly orchestrated and it's got nothing to do with health. Yeah, you know, let's get this straight. You know, if your government were worried about your health, you know, they would ban McDonald's because it's a poison. You know, it's poisonous. It's not food. They'd ban fast food. They'd ban, um, you know, things that, you, know, you want to give people choice. Okay, fine. It's not about making a sterile life. But at the very least, as you say, you wouldn't you wouldn't have McDonald's be open and to close your local gym. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, it, it's ludicrous. It's not got anything to do with health. None of this. Because COVID's just gone. You know, it's gone up in you know, smoke. Mm. Like, it just disappeared. Because it's not on the BBC. I mean, come on to the BBC. I mean, we, it's so ridiculous that we, we are paying for our own propaganda. We're <laughs> <laughs> also paying the licence fee, you know, to have uh, government propaganda coming into your homes. You know, what a system, what a beautiful system. You know, yeah. that people are paying for their own demise like this. Uh, because that's all it is. People aren't worried about it now because it's not on the BBC. And I was like you, I tell what the biggest first advice I'd give anyone is turn off your TV. I could throw it in the bin. I haven't had a TV for years. And I think I still have fun at home. You know, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's just propaganda and, um, it's clear because when they BBC go after, have gone after doctors who have spoken out. The few doctors in the UK that have spoken out, you know, they've gone after them. They've done hit pieces on them. You know, you got BBC, you know, fact checking doctors. What on earth is going on? Have you had a hit piece on you? Have you had a hit piece on you yet? No, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm popular enough. Ah, you're clearly not rattling enough cages, doctor. That's what it is. We need to uh, we need to get you out there amongst it. I think a bit more. Uh, but you know, I think I think that's the, the and you touched on this before. It's you know when you speak out, uh, when you when you try and stand on the side of values and truth, it's a lonely journey. You see, so I almost beat your hand off when you offered to speak to me about this because I can't talk to any of my friends. No, yeah, like, I don't really have any friends that I can talk to. Um, no one's interested. You know, it's lonely. It's fine. Yeah. Because, you know, the thing that challenges and kind of going back to that emotional side of things, the thing that, how, how are you going to challenge, you know, how you react? As you say, you, 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 know, you can be evoked, you can be prodded and poked to have an emotional reaction. 
uh, but it's controllable. How is it controllable? It's controllable when you shift your baseline understanding of the world that we live in and you reinforce the values that you stand for. Now, you know, you're not encouraged to do this at school, you're not encouraged to do this at university. You know, parents have really lost the ability to instill this in their children, you know, because they're too busy at work or, you know, whatever. You know, we don't get this. No one encourages it. The government certainly don't encourage it. You know, think about what you stand for, what kind of life, you know. It's rhetoric. They, there's a lot of rhetoric out there. You can kind of get mixed up in kind of popular popularist notions about things. But this is something every individual has to do. What's the purpose of your life? You know, whether you believe in a god or not, you know, what's the purpose of your life? Why are you here? What are your core values? Three core values that you stand for. And off you go. And whatever you come across in life, you know, this is your reference point. So. You know, how can people challenge um, uh, those emotions that arise by, you know, these psychological operations? It's about reevaluating themselves. It's finding themselves, really, because it's in there in all of us. You know, we just have to look and we just have to ask ourselves, what is it that we stand for? And whatever it is, then that's it, you know. And so some people are going to react in a positive way, other people aren't. Uh, and that's fine, but that's the way to do it. You know, that's the way to kind of break out of this kind of uh, response, you know, that we're just not the sum of our emotions. You know, emotions are part of us, but they're not us. Yeah. And often, often emotions aren't our friends. You know, and, you know, it's, to be human is to be emotional. It's part of us, it's part of our nature. But it doesn't mean it's a good thing or it's a helpful thing. Often it's not. Um, so this whole thing about, oh, I feel... I feel this. I feel I am this. I feel I need to do this. Uh, in many cases, fallacy. People think that they use logic to make decisions, but actually, most people use feelings and emotions to make decisions. And that's why yeah. this has been so successful. Academics, professors, I've seen them all. You know, emotions. You know, your your letters and your qualifications and your degrees account for nothing you know if you haven't asked yourself the question what's your purpose what are your values and i've spoken to professors old professors who've retired they never ask themselves this question so i ask them for nuggets of advice I was like, you know you're 70 years old you retired you know what are your insights about life I'm empty i get nothing back you know, yeah. I was just disappointed. You know, I'll get something here I can use for the next 40 years or something. You know? Yeah. But nothing, you know, it's so cool. It doesn't matter who you are, the amount of qualifications you have, you know, because I've seen everyone from all walks of life, you know, react in this way. Those who haven't, you know, to be susceptible to the, you know, this kind of psychological operations, those who haven't asked these core values. Um, and, you know, you have to challenge the fact that your government are there to help you. They're not. That's not being a conspiracy theorist. It's just the reality. <laughs> you shouldn't be labelled a conspiracy theorist for, for, for just asking questions, really, at all, and, and, and valid questions as well. But what I find what I found interesting is is the ego, right? 
the ego as, a, as an emotion is is what stops us from having these these adult conversations that we need to be having with each other because like you say you've got the professors that have got their crystallized knowledge no one's ever challenged them about their knowledge with this and that so they cannot be wrong um but yet like you say how many coincidences need to happen you know how many times do us tin four hat folk need to be kind of 90 percent on the money or on the money before people start thinking well they might be right about a couple of things they are um and i think a lot of that's part of the ego is that people can't just admit or just control their ego enough to go okay maybe we we did jump the mark a little bit maybe with it but let's let's have a conversation now and you see that quite a lot in in the video that you did with um uh with kate because we know how far things go and the overarching thing but trying to explain that to people i've always explained it is we've had little red pills over a period of time you know we've, we've looked into things we've, we've done our own research we've done our own we've gained our own knowledge which in in turn protects you i think because if you understand how things work you, you can't be manipulated by the fear that they're trying to instill in in society because well it doesn't work like that it doesn't spread like this you know you, you're at low risk of this so you can't be manipulated but people that don't have the knowledge they find it too intimidating one i think to actually delve into the medical side of things they find it quite intimidating um and two, there's so many conflicting opinions, um, which is what medicine is about, which is why you do the studies, you know, basically to collate everyone's opinion and to see which one's the best. Um, so it's it's difficult. So we need to come up with a way. And I think the Rona and the pandemic has done that, where people can start seeing a taste of what the government really is trying to do and then naturally start asking the right questions. And they'll always get to the overall question at the end is, well, why? Why are they doing this? And then that's when you start, you go up a level then and it gets a little bit more, you know, but we have to get them to that point of asking that question before they can go straight to the next level. So I don't think until we can get everybody to have the conversations that we need to, can we actually start turning around and finger pointing at the government? Because we need more of us to be asking the right questions and basically turn around and say, well, why did you do this when there was these people saying, you know, X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I mean... I mean, the government um, you know, is just, just the example. You know, is it, you just can't get away from you know what the government is supposed to represent, and you know it's and you know in many ways we we're supposed to be um, uh, a microcosm of the government in our own lives. You know, like we're, we're the we're the main actor in our own film of our own lives. Um, we're the you know. But it's a choice, though. It's a choice whether you're the main actor, whether you're a Tom Cruise or a Brad Pitt, you know, or whether you're uh, a no-name supporting actor. You know, you may know some supporting actors, but you know, I can't think of any of the top of my head. You know, but you know, do you want to be an extra actually, even because extras don't have names? Do you want to be an extra in someone else's story, or, or do you want to be uh, the main star in your own story? That's a decision we all have to make. That's a conscious decision. The, the problem is that we get conditioned you know, right from the very beginning you know, to be extras in someone else's movie. And so that so you need to there needs to be a purge, like an internal purge to try and get you to become confident enough to be the lead actor or actress. Um, and that's I would see that as being our life journey. You know, it's yeah. a process that doesn't stop until you die. 
Um, so you can ask questions and ask questions and ask questions, but they're not really going to get you anywhere. You know, if you're not doing the work yourself. So no one, I'll tell you now, no one knows the why. And there's lots of theories. Okay, fine. But who cares the why? Because you still need to do what you need to do. And then if you become powerful enough of an actor in your own story, you may be able to influence others around you. And that's probably the best thing that most people can hope for. Uh, but if you imagine everyone's doing that, then it's a big force, you see. It's a big, powerful force. So we don't look at the end game. You don't know what the end, we don't know what the end game is. You know, we could be dead tomorrow, next week. But it doesn't matter on one level. It matters what you do and the endeavor that you um, uh, subscribe to. And one thing's for sure, part of the conditioning that we get as kids through Disney and all these kind of, you know, um, vile things, um, uh, is that we, we need to strive for um, comfort and ease and security because there's a happily ever after. And that's a trap because we only grow through discomfort. So you have to be doing something hard voluntarily put yourself in that space in order to grow. You know, some people get you know, imposed in that way. You don't have a choice, you either sink or you swim. But for most people, you, you need to find, you need to have some discomfort in your life at regular intervals in order to ensure that you're growing. But everything else, everything we're told from school, you know, to our daily lives in society, it's about, you know, being safe and secure and ease. You know, when I retire, it'll be so nice. You know, how many people are looking forward to that? How many people in the middle age are looking forward to their retirement? Like they're wishing their life away. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you're wishing your life away. And when you get to retirement, that's an anticlimax. What a surprise. You know what? Life still goes on and life is still hard. Yeah. You know, um, so you choose, the, you choose the difficulty you want to be in. Either the, uh, the, the crap that people put you in or the difficulty that you put yourself for some to fulfill your own purpose and your own destiny, whatever that is. Um, and I think that's a dynamic I see. So people can go to kind of whys and what's, and yeah, you know, it's interesting and it's important for some people, uh, but nothing's going to change. The why, it doesn't matter if you're not doing what you need to do. And you need to be, we need to be looking at our own lives, our own families to begin with. Um, because as, as you say, there's been lots of fractures, you know, um, and you know these wounds will run deep. You know, take a long time to heal, um, uh, and then we need to look at our own communities, um, and that, that's really the focus. But the the single message is that you take the single overarching message is that you have you take responsibility for your life, which is your health, your wealth, and your family. You know, don't don't give that up to anyone else. Okay. Um, and when you make a conscious, conscious decision to do that, you know, it empowers you. Uh, and, you know, the universe is, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, and there's laws, uh, the unwritten laws that, you know, and I've seen this in my life. I've seen this in, you know, amazing people that I work with is that when you take those steps into discomfort, you know, doors open up. 
things that are inconceivable at one point become tangible and possible. But nothing's going to happen if you just sit there in your comfort zone, you know. Uh, and th I think this is a universal law. Yeah. You know, uh, you, I've seen it, you know, too often with too many people for it to be nothing but. I, it's no guarantee because you don't know when your opening is going to come. But certainly seeing, seeing on your ass doing nothing, you know, and criticizing others or wishing things. We've been doing that for two, three years. It's not got us anywhere. Um, well, it's got us. It's like monkeypox. Oh, right. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. Yeah, that was that was. I'm going to get to that. But I wanted to. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to just ask a couple more questions first of all, as well. So um, you also mentioned something again in the film, which again was a brilliant thing to have said. That, that, that basically it's not in Doctor's nature to to be brave. Because um, obviously everyone keeps asking, you know, why haven't doctors spoken out? Why haven't doctors spoken out? Now, I know what doctors are like. Um, there's a handful that you can, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but you could probably relate. There's a handful that you can consider normal people, right? And then there's the rest that are on like this kind of, um, this kind of plane of existence that's just about reality, but the rest is just in kind of like doctor land. And usually outside being a doctor, their lives are pretty car crash. <laughs> so in my experience, I'm not saying they're all horrendous, but, but they have this big kind of persona and they get put on these pedestals, but you need to remind people that they're just normal people. And quite frankly, they'll probably have more stuff going on outside because they're normally just so uh, intensely trying to get their head around medicine and doing all that kind of stuff. They're not very great um, on a kind of social level. I mean, <laughs> the most important point is that doctors are just like everyday people. Um, so as you say, so some of the most amazing people I've met in my life uh, have been doctors. Some of the worst people that I've met, like really worst people that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, you know, have been doctors as well, you know. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the spectrum's there. Uh, but the, you know, so, so that's one thing. We're no different. So how we react to sit situations um, is going to be the same, and we've kind of seen that. Um, whether you're a doctor or, or not, it hasn't really mattered your level of questioning around what's going on if you're not used to doing that. Um, um, but, uh, I mean, doctors, you know, the psychology of doctors you know, is a really important point. It's something that no one really talks about because doctors don't like talking about themselves in that way. But, you know, I've seen it. You know, I've been part of it. Uh, and, you know, through my own training, but then also being part of medical school for almost 10 years. And, you know, I also kind of externally examine, you know, like Cambridge and, you know, Brighton. And, you know, so I kind of see things, you know, in other medical schools and it, it's all the same. And actually it's not changed from when I was training. Medical training has not changed. It's not evolved. Really, if you look at the crux of it, it's the same. Uh, so whether the world has changed and life's changed and science and health and, Doctor's training is the same, um, and the the characters, the type of personality that go into medicine, and the type of personality that comes out the other end, you know, it doesn't matter who you are at the start. You get bashed. Your enthusiasm gets bashed out of you. Your creativity gets bashed out of you. You know, by the end, where the objective is really for someone just to be uh, compliant, 
medic in a system that's not run by doctors. And that's something we have to take responsibility for. I think previous generation of doctors who, 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 who let go of the responsibility of leading hospitals, now you have managers, non-clinical people making decisions. So they, what they want is a doctor that's just going to listen. And, and what medical school essentially does is it takes out your enthusiasm, your creativity, it teaches you how to be compliant. And what's worse than that, it, teach, it gives you a framework of health and medicine that you think is the only thing that exists. So it's a very narrow way of looking, um, but you can't accept anything outside of, of the framework that you've been given, which is very limited. Uh, and that's a problem. You know? um, uh, and so if you, if you look at this, you know, it, it doesn't encourage um, people being brave and courageous um, people um, being inquisitive. You know, your training doesn't encourage any of that because as soon as you become a doctor, you have to go through the same stuff. You've got your exams, you know, you've got long hours, you work weekends, you know, it's, uh, you know, shift work. You travel from one, one place for a few months and another place for a few months. You've got to study for your exams, for your membership. It doesn't stop. You don't have the time to reflect. And then at some point, I think there's a conscious decision where you just give up. And you know what, life's easier if I just do what I'm told. So I get to whatever level I'm getting to. And, you know, I just go with it, you know, because it's a job. I've got kids. I've got a mortgage. I've got a car. I'm just the same as alone. everyone else. Still Sorry? Still alone. Still alone. Yeah, gosh, yeah. yeah. I'm just the same as everyone else. Like, yeah. I was going to say, I don't think people appreciate, I mean... Doctors in general, it's five years at uni, then it's what, another three years to specialise. So you, you, you're looking about eight, nine years, aren't you, before you kind of get into the role that you kind of going to predominantly do longer. So, career. So it's five, six years at medical school, uh, and then two years before you get your registration with the GMC. Mm -hmm. uh, and then three years if you want to become a GP. So that's um, six, about 11 years if you want to become a GP. But if you want to become a specialist, then um, you're looking at from about 15 years to 17 years from starting medical school. Uh, so you've long... got, yeah, so you've got these doctors that have just come off the back of that and now people are going to be expecting them to speak out against the, the very system that they've been in for the last sort of 12, 15 years. They're finally getting to the point where they're getting the, a decent amount of money uh, to start paying back some of the mammoth amounts of debt. So people don't take that into consideration i knew very from the very beginning that i was going to speak out and i would have been prepared to to have handed in the towel in my job um if they if they brought in mandatory vaccinations and i think that was very very clear for me from the start you need to put your money where your mouth is within reason because it's easy to 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 say these things but but actually i mean i was fortunate that i was in a position where i could have done that but i know lots of people aren't but they're only thinking about the foreseeable future i mean we discussed this briefly uh, with colleagues in the past in china they can already dictate to you how many children you can have right they've changed it recently so now you can have two so if they start to dictate to us what we put in our body it won't take long before they can start to dictate what we put outside our body and, and other things as well so when they start dictating how many children you can have what weight they think you should be you know and it, and it all goes down sort of a, a sinister sort of slope um and it concerns me that people don't have the foresight to see where it could lead when we've got 
plethora of history that we can go and read that will show what happens if we give the government too much too much power and too much control yeah i mean when you give up what goes into your body i mean what else is there left to give up you know it's like it's like giving up your soul you know it's so profound and i think you know this this test i think it was like a test not like a or experiment not not, not the the job itself, but you know, how people are going to react to this type of pressure. And it is what it was, because as it came, it went. So test over. Okay, we know who's going to comply. We know who's not going to comply. You know, we're going to compile, you know, our profiles of, of both camps. It's useful knowledge. You know, yeah. This is what we had, you know, and it, the, the simulation around it, the pre-simulation happened with the event 201. I mean, it's there in your face. Everything that happened, you know, we were shown how it was going to happen and who was going to be involved. Um, so, it's, so there's one thing having things in theory and the thing in practice. So this has really kind of gleaned a lot of information about who's willing to give up essentially their soul. For what? Um, you know, a bit of fear, a bit of discomfort. You know, we're not as tough or as brave as we think we are. You know, I'm talking about doctors here. Again, mm. judging people, we trust doctors. Um, and, you know, I know lots of doctors, you see. Um, uh, mindless, though, taking jabs, had adverse reactions. I'll take the next one. Um, you know, uh, I know another as a nurse I was working with and you know, had a reaction. It's like, well, you know, I'm just someone who sees things through to the end, so I'm going to have my next job. It's like, I, you know, like people just are just mindless. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's a problem. You know, it's a problem we have and it's we need to sort ourselves out. And I think if we're looking at psychology and we're looking at the art of resistance, um, you know, as powerful as we have forces that appeal to um, our emotions, you know, dissent is also very powerful. Um, so I remember doing psychology at A levels. Uh, you know, mind's always been an interest to me from the from the beginning, uh, and we simulated this experiment where, um, you know, how much dissent do you need um, in order for other people to comply? So we had a, group, a room of people, um, I mean, we kind of simulated, I can't remember the exact name, I think it's Ash, Ash's conformity experiments, I think it was Ash, um, I may be kind of mistaken, it's off the top of my head, it was quite a few years ago. Uh, so he's looking at conformity and dissent. Uh, so we had a whole room of people giving the incorrect answer uh, to a question. Uh, and then you kind of tested um, how many people did it take um, uh, to inculcate Kind of dissent. So if you had one person dissenting, or two people, or three people, how would that affect the others? Right. Um, and you know, you don't need a lot of people. You know, ten percent to dissent. Dissent's not a dirty thing. You know, it's not a bad word. You know, it's just objecting. Um, so, you know, my hope is, you know, why am I doing something like this? You know, why are we why are we doing something like this? You know, we want people to think. It doesn't take a lot of people to think to form a critical momentum uh, and that's why we get censored the censorship i mean i haven't even touched on that before another time but 
the censorship has been unprecedented. You know, what's the, what's the harm in people just saying what they think? The harm is the power of dissent and impact upon conformity. So you need to be shut down. That's clear. So um, yeah, so these are kind of basic. Um, so just as they're using basic psychology, psychological warfare, you know, there's a way to kind of combat that. That's in with that within ourselves that we do in our own worlds, but then also being able to be, you know, role models for dissent. You know, I mean that in an arrogant way. You know, just standing up, people think, ah, you know, okay, that makes sense. You know, he's doing that or she's doing that. Uh, you know, it, it inspires. Not that though, you know, you're, you know, what's inspirational about what we're trying to do is just the dissent. You know, it's not about us personally. You know, people don't know us. You know, what we're projecting now is not necessarily kind of anything apart from what we're saying or what we're saying we're standing for. You know, it's not about personal things. You know, it's about what we're trying to achieve here. And it's that, you know, encouragement for people to, to think twice. We just need people to start asking the questions, really, don't we? That that's all. It, they don't even need to be the right questions. It's just just start asking questions. Just instead of just going, okay, fine. You know, if you still don't understand it or you still have other questions, you need to ask those questions. But they've they've done in such a good job of just making people afraid of being made to look stupid or you know being chastised for answer, answering or asking these certain certain questions. And I've always liked to ask questions because that's how you, you know. But even at uni i remember being one of the only ones that used to ask numerous questions because people would just sit there and it's like come on guys you know you've got stuff you want to ask but they just sit there and sit on these things and that in itself tells tells a lot there's always those few people that will stand up first and take the few rounds that they'll that will get shot at but they're the ones that people will look at and think well i don't want to be i don't want to be treated like that yeah. but they've still trampled on the grass to to, to lay a bit of a path for, to make that bit a little bit easier for you um, you know, so somebody has to do it, don't they? I think. Um, well, but we well, haven't touched. I have, to, I have to thank. People. Yeah, sorry, just on that point, I have to thank people like you because I was you know, throughout my whole life, I've been the one who's been you know, conformed. You know, I've just done what they've been told to do, and I did it really well. You know, I was really good at conforming, doing what other people wanted. You know, I had a knack of doing that. You know, so if like a school or, or whatever, someone wants a piece of work. I know exactly what they need to kind of for them to be happy, you know. So I was the most compliant person throughout my whole life, really. So th this has not come naturally to me, and I think it kind of it kind of comes to what we starting at the very beginning uh, around, you know, when did I kind of speak up? Um, you know, it's something I'd never done before. I'd, I wasn't the person questioning in, in the class who'd always question things. Not really the quiet one, just get on with what needs to be done. Um, so yeah, and I think you know the reason why I say that is. You know, I hope that I can give encouragement to people who think they can't speak out or to think that, oh, we were born like this. You know, nothing in life is, um, um, uh, you know, defined for you apart from your death, I think. I don't mm. think you can cheat death. But you can d decide how you lead your life and change. It's never too late to change. So when we talk about health, you're never too sick to become healthy. Uh, and, you know, um, you know, you can change your behavior and achieve anything you want. You know, and it's not like, it's not like a Tony Robbins feel good thing. It's possible. Mm. You know, you just have to apply yourself in the right way. There's no secrets. 
really, to success in life, wherever you want success to be. Um, but you need to be encouraged to be able to um, uh, you know, galvanize those aspects of yourself, you know, in order to uh, reach your goals. And I think that's what we're also trying to trying to achieve with, with, with this today. Well, I think everyone has everyone wants a YouTube video to lay out instructions on how to do things, you know, how to better yourself, how to do this and how to do that. But they, they are just instructions. You still need to go away and, and either meditate, reflect or whatever it is that you, you feel like you need to do to get to that point. And, and there is no savior. There is no one particular savior person that's going to, you have to do that yourself. Even with, you know, with, with faith and all that kind of stuff. Yes, there is um, people who have faith in, in, in these, uh, these gods and, and, and religion and things. But, but ultimately, it's you that's, that's, that's doing those things. You know, yes, you have motivation um, and willingness to do these things. But ultimately, it's you that's actually doing it. You're going to church. You're reading essays. You know, but you're physically doing those things. Um, and it's okay to have a history like I do of saying the right things to the wrong people, I think, because it teaches them people that there are people out there that will ask those questions and they're not bothered about the circumstances uh, uh, that they're in. But we're going to touch on this one last thing because I'm conscious of time. And um, uh, I'd like to have you on, on again at some point as well, further on down the line when when this monkeypox thing is is, is, is developed even more. But so monkeypox, right? It started just like the Rona did, isn't it? Uh, yeah, like um, somewhere out there in the distance, um, you know, um, some unseen, potentially lethal killer. Um, and, you know, it's kind of creeping up closer and closer. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of, that mysticism was so important to kind of, as part of the kind of scene setting, the stagecraft, um uh and you know we're seeing cases exponentially rising they've tripled so from three to nine okay you know 56 million people in england almost 70 in the uk so we've got nine cases of something um you know why is that making the news red you know so we see red we see maps we see red we see percent you know it's the same kind of propaganda that's been shoved in our faces um, you know, people need to ask how, ask themselves really, do they want to do this again? No, seriously, come on. Yeah. You don't need science. Not about evidence-based medicine with all its limitations. Not about science. It's about your experience of life. You know, none of that matters if it's incongruent with your experience in life. Okay. The monkey box isn't in front of your face, people dying on the streets. You know, I don't worry about it. You're sensible people. Look after your health, look after your family. You know, be sensible, be respectful, be positive. It's very important. You know, don't let this happen again. I find it interesting how they're saying that you need to isolate for three weeks if you have a positive test interesting um and that that just goes to show that they're assuming people don't understand the um the process of of pox as a as a virus or disease you know that that it's generally very contagious but generally very mild um we need to remind people we used to have chicken pox parties back in the day which is now classed as um 
assault <laughs> if you do that now. So you'll have social services knocking at your door. But that 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 was how it was, wasn't it? You'd have the chicken box parties, you'd all get chicken pox, and then you'd all be immune. Um, so it's it's interesting how they they're gonna make do you th- I mean put this is my personal opinion. There's either two ways, two things that are gonna come out of this. They're either they're gonna play it down as really bad, and what's gonna happen is it's gonna affect people that have had one or two jabs and it's going to exacerbate the symptoms potentially because their immune system is already a little bit messed up from the jab and they're going to be serious cases which may result in in deaths so then they're going to encourage people to then take a another jab to to, to immunize themselves against um uh, against monkeypox or the um people that have uh had the jabs will be um fine but the p uh sorry the people that have had the jabs will be all right but there'll be certain incidences when they're not or it will be encouraged to mutate to something more lethal either way there are either going to be trouble with the people that have had the jab or there's going to be something that will encourage people to have the monkeypox jab and at the moment the way the monkeypox virus is it's not it's not as it is at the moment it's not going to do either of those things they need to, to blow up a little bit more somehow yeah i mean it's difficult really to have a serious conversation, you know, without, you know, establishing things that we take for granted, like the premise. So it's the same with the Rona stuff. First of all, you know, decisions around um, isolation. Okay, we know isolation doesn't do anything. Okay, um, because it didn't for Corona. Um, but these twenty-one days, just arbitrary. It's like picking, plucking this figure up. From from the air, really, just like the two meters, twenty one days. Um, but the premise around kind of what a case is, we had big problems with that when it came to COVID nineteen. I talk about that in the film. I'll be here for another hour if you went over that stuff. People just watch a film, probably easier. Um, but there's big issues with the case, big issues with deaths, uh, and I don't think those issues been resolved when it comes to the smallpox because it was uh, woefully inadequate testing were meaningless um, case counts and death count were meaningless because the rules were changed where you could have a positive test for a test that doesn't test for what it's supposed to test and then you could be run over by a bus but your uh, covid death that's ludicrous We're talking about systematic di- uh, dismantling of medicine that's just another example. I thought a joke, but we're all falling for it. Anyway, um, but then, uh, you know, so we have to look at these things. So these things that we take for granted, okay, is this a case? Is this 20 isolation? Like, where you're, you're accepting certain fun- premises. And I think what we've, the big thing we've learned is we don't take anything for granted here. You know, we don't have, we our, our foundations, our, the premise that we, we, we um, understand health and risk and what a virus is and what it isn't and what health is and how you protect yourself. Uh, you know, it's grounded in that uh, mantra that we get taught at medical school, the very kind of narrow allopathic Western medical model where everything is reduced down to one process, one drug. So one sickness, one cause, um, one drug, you know, of this defect in this one thing here. So we need to give you a drug to help with that pathway to help with the, reduce that symptom. You know, it's all flawed. Um, so just by even saying monkeypox virus, you're accepting something. And we yeah. can't make that same mistake again. 
Um, and I find it funny that there's that a lot of people that are joking about the monkeypox virus are the ones that have already had at least two, three, four jabs. And they'll be the ones that will also probably have the monkeypox jab if it, if it is available to people, which... Yeah. I mean, there's there's many aspects to this just before we even get onto the monkeypox, because what you kind of alluded to, the, the impact of the jabs. Okay, so there was an unknown. We told you it was safe and effective. And actually, before I go, I, I just have to tell you this. That, you know, I tried in my NHS trust to open a dialogue to say, look, you know, they're not safe and effective. Can we just talk about this? Like NHS, NHS, save the NHS. It's a beautiful thing. Is it in the NHS? You know, so I spoke with the director of research and education. I spoke with the chief medical officer and I said, I don't agree with this. There's lots of things that aren't right. Let's talk. You know, I was shut down. They're not interested in health. They're not interested in the right thing. All they're interested is doing what they're told. And so the director of education and research said to me, look, I'm not an expert. We just need to be told what to do by the experts. But I believe in evidence-based medicine. So then I sent him a thousand papers of documented peer-reviewed journals where there's been adverse events from these, uh, from the jabs. And it's nothing. I said, if you really believe in evidence-based medicine, have a bit of this, mate. You know, let's see what you make of this. Nothing. The chief medical officer, and, and this was what I found most distressing, really. He, he was reveling in the fact that the closer we got to this mandate, deadline for, for NHS workers to have a job or be sacked. He was reveling in the fact that the closer we got to, the more people were taking, we got to that deadline, the more people were taking the job. And I said to him, how can you be happy about this? This is coercion. And he didn't get it. You know, he just didn't get it. I was like, how can I work for people like this? You know? And, and so, um, um, you know, coming back around to, um, um, I think I lost my train of thought now. But we, we were monkey back, back to the yeah, the, the monkeypox. There's so many questions oh, I want to ask you about censorship yeah. and that, but um, we'd, we'd be yeah. we'd be here all day. Yeah, sorry, I, I just remembered actually. So, so just yeah, so around the, the the jabs and we can't talk about monkeypox if we can't talk about the impact of the, the jabs. Initially, it was unknown, you know, but there were red flags. But now it's clear that this is having a detrimental effect. You know, more and more red flags on people's immune systems so we've had this big program of people have taken things that aren't effective that have had lots of problems one of them being impacting people's uh, ability, uh, immune systems and these are the the, the signals that are coming out uh, and then now we're getting a new virus that might be a problem you know we can't talk about these things without understanding how they come in the order and sequence of things because if you take them in isolation you know, and yeah, you know, it may be a bit scary, but if you put it in the in the context of things, you know, you can kind of see what's going on. It's not that sophisticated. But when someone lines up all the dots for you, it's easy to see what's going on, isn't it? But you still need those people to line the dots up for you for you, you to kind of get to that uh, eureka moment. Yeah. And that's why it's great you're doing this podcast because I think, uh, you know, now's the time. You know, so when we're out of that acute anxiety state, you know, people should be more receptive. You know, just because BBC tells us 
COVID is over doesn't mean we stop talking about it. On the contrary, this is the time where we we take it apart because people will be more receptive to it because we're not in, you know, oh, there's no corona. I've got my jobs. There's nothing to worry about. It's the time. It's the time to appeal to people. You know, so this is, you know, I don't think we can talk about this enough. Um, and I think people should be more receptive to it now <clears throat> uh, than ever before. I think so. I think because we've got we've come out the the, the the main fear stage and the threshold, I think, of people's um, willingness to go along with these scenarios. People have done the jabs. They've done the isolate and they don't want to do any more now. Um, a lot more people are stopping it too. No one wants any more. Um, people are starting to see people having reactions or they're not the same. And there's lots of conversations we need to be having, I think, probably 12 months down the line after Ukraine, after monkeypox. There's a lot of things we need to get through. Um, but it depends on what sort of state of affairs are <laughs> left at the end of all of that, really. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Ukraine um, uh, because that's relevant as well. You know, we haven't really had a rest between uh, Corona and monkeypox, you know, because we've we've all been told to worry about Ukraine. And I have to be clear here: like, there's no winners in war. That war's a horrendous thing, you know. But it's not the only war that's going on in the world. Okay, um, that affects us potentially. And actually, there's wars in the world that are going on at the moment that we're actively involved with. We, as in uh, Great Britain. Mm. You know, but we're told to focus on one thing, just like, you know, before, just like before Corona, there was, and it's still there in the background, you know, um, heightened security alert that we could be kind of bombed anytime, you know, terrorist threat alert high, you know, for years. I think from post 9-11, you know, up to Corona, that was a main threat, you know, and, um, you know, maybe a topic for, again, for another day, but, you know, I was considered to be the demographic that was at most threat to people in the UK, uh, a, a Muslim male with a beard who's brown, okay, he's going to come and get you. You know, we had that for about 20 years. It's, and there was things before then, you know, so we have to understand what's going on here. This is not something that's happened in isolation. The systematic traumatization of our population, you know, um, dumbs down this free independent thinking increases compliance um it's just the way it happens and you know and, and things in the world happen in the way that they're going to happen but uh you know this is nothing new and it's a chain of things you know this trauma of the people you know if we close ourselves out you know we can't grow spiritually emotionally intellectually you know if we're in the if we're told to be frightened of something at some point constantly and throughout my adult life, I've spent my whole life here in England. It's been one threat after another. And it has an impact. And most of these threats aren't justified. And, you know, I have uh, expertise in kind of terrorism, um, mental health and terrorism. We can talk about that at some point. You know, it's, and I have in my forensic work, I've done kind of many cases. Uh, it's not what you think. It's not mm. what you're told. So I see the case that I've been involved with, and then I see the BBC article on it. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it's it's not what you're told. 
Right. Well, listen, we, we're pretty much Bob on the two hour mark. Um, so I want to stop it there because I want to get you back on because there's a whole load of stuff that we didn't get into. Um, but but that's good. That's good. Um, but um, so obviously I've just been putting your email address on the screen. If anyone wants to reach out to Dr. Ajaz for any questions, obviously hook him up on his email. Um, and I just want to thank you for coming on today and speaking out. But we we'll definitely get you on again and we'll ask some more um questions obviously close to the bone uh, but i hope you come back and join us anyway yeah no i'd love to and, and really thank you so much matt i think you know you're doing you know amazing uh, work and uh, you know it takes a lot of courage you know not, none of us are going to get famous and rich from doing this you know, <laughs> yeah that. despite you know. what people think though that's yeah. the thing, isn't it? That, despite what people say yeah. It's like, this is it. This is my house. This is my yeah. spare bedroom. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's not like yeah. I'm in a fancy studio. Yeah. We're not on Joe Rogan, unfortunately, but we've yeah. still got to get the message out, haven't we? I'm well, exactly. Saying. So, you know, it takes courage um, and, uh, you know, no one can, can, can question your, your intention to kind of, you know, do what needs to be done. Um, so, you know, I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, and you know, it would be an, an immense honour to come back again um, and, uh, you know, continue things at some point. Yeah. There's a whole avenue of stuff we need to get uh, get down to uh, nitty gritty of, I think, to be honest. Great. But Thank you, you, so Thank you, you for joining me, all right? You take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.